Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. Today we're going to continue being in John chapter 10. John chapter 10, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 11. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand or a hireling and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon, is insane. Listen, why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And this is the context. So Jesus is in a, 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 a process of communication with these leaders, these religious shepherds of Israel, the Pharisees. Now Jesus, and this goes back now several chapters, Jesus has been in uh, since chapter 8 in a confrontation with these, these religious leaders of Israel. And they have continually rejected everything or explained away everything about Jesus. And by the time you get to chapter 10, they have already conspired no less than three times to have him killed. And there's no question about their view of who Jesus truly is. And so this is why Jesus is continuing to prove that he is Messiah, fulfilling Scripture, teaching Scripture, reminding them of prophecy, and showing them miracles, and they continue to refuse to believe. Truth is, Jesus is going to prove in front of them that they are wolves based upon what they've already seen in Jesus and heard Jesus teach. It's, 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 to me, it's obvious that they are not unable to believe or having difficulty believing. It's that they are unwilling to believe. And no matter what Jesus teaches or what, no matter what Jesus does, Jesus is a threat. And I'm fairly convinced that at this point, these men are pretty convinced that Jesus is the Messiah because they are unwilling, rebellious, rebelliously murderous, not only of the sheep of God leading them astray, but the very lamb himself sent as a sacrifice for them. So what Jesus begins to do is to compare his care of the sheep versus the religious leader's care of the sheep. Now you remember that shepherding is a, a pretty powerful metaphor that people understood in this agrarian society, especially in Israel. It's very common in the Old Testament, and uh, I wanted to give you just a couple. Like Psalm 80, for instance, God himself calls himself the shepherd of Israel. 
Psalm 23, the Lord is my. And many, many times throughout the Old Testament, God takes on this endorsement or even calls himself the shepherd of his people. And so they all understood exactly what that meant because it was a land full of sheep and shepherds. In fact, the, the idea of shepherding things spoke of how well you cared for or f- would feed or protect the things under your care. And so these Pharisees were men who were self-appointed, by the way, shepherds of Israel. But Jesus is revealing in front of them and kind of behind their back that they are thieves, they are robbers, they are strangers, or they are hirelings. They had many different motivations by which they served, but regardless, every one of them are false shepherds. Chapter 9 closes with Jesus pronouncing a very strong judgment on them because of their rejection when he says to them, their sin remains. Now you remember, we talked a little bit about this last week, and I was trying to be careful not to, not to you know, kind of muddy the waters for this week too, but uh, at night the sheep would come into the, the sheepfold, the pen, and every shepherd, not just the single shepherd, every shepherd, in fact, Uh, things were so open that many times out in the open pasture, there'd be one pen and many shepherds would bring their sheep into the same pen. Uh, Very, in fact, it was pretty, pretty common. It didn't always happen. It just depended on what region you were in when you had your sheep out to pasture. But when you would bring your sheep in, they would come in and uh, they would all be in the same pen. Then in the morning, the shepherd would come to the, to the door or to the gate and he would call out his own sheep and call them by name. And he knows his sheep by name and the sheep knows their shepherd's voice and they follow him out of the pen. We also learned that while they're in the pen at night, sh- uh, thieves, robbers may climb over the wall and try to steal or you know, fleece the sheep a little bit or destroy the shepherd. And as the sheep would go in, I find this interesting, as the sheep would go in, the shepherd, each sheep, they would line up to get into the pen. And following the shepherd, as the door, he would drop his staff down, his rod down, and he would inspect every sheep by name as they would go in. And he would inspect them for the wounds that they might have incurred throughout the day or the state of their being before they would come in, see if there's any kind of problem with each individual sheep. In the morning, just the reverse. He would stand at the door, and each sheep would come through, and he would inspect, and he would count, and he would see by name, make sure all the sheep are still accounted for. And so Jesus is saying that he is the good shepherd. He is the faithful shepherd. This is how shepherding should be done, not with care to the job, but with care to the sheep. This is how I do it. I am the door. And we know verse 6 says that he's speaking metaphorically, using a figure of speech. But it's in this, in this verse, in verse 9, when he says, I am the door, he says that whoever comes through me will be saved. So we know the metaphor is not about shepherding. The metaphor is about salvation. But in verse 11, he specifically says, I am the good shepherd. So between verses 11 to verse 21, Jesus explains how he himself fulfills the identity of the good shepherd. He is the good shepherd. He is the one prophesied in 
Ezekiel chapter 34. If you go back to the, there, we will, it's very, very, well, not a very, very, but a very lengthy passage. We won't take, take the time to read it. But in that passage, God himself talks about these false shepherds, religious leaders of Israel, and that the quality of the shepherd that he is going to send to care for his sheep. And he describes the kind of shepherd that the Messiah will be. He also distinguishes himself there between the false leaders from himself. And if they truly knew God, then when Jesus begins to talk in these things, they would murmur among themselves and say, Is not this the one? This is the one. He is the, the one talking about fulfilling all of the shepherding prophecies of the Old Testament. But they couldn't hear. They couldn't understand. Almost as if a veil, a blindness was over their eyes. They couldn't lead anybody anywhere because they themselves didn't know where they were going. They are in fact strangers, not shepherds. Some of them were robbers and they were abusers. Some of them were thieves and conniving and stealth. But all of them were mercenary hirelings, self-appointed, only caring and doing what they did for money, not only for themselves, but for each other, and they had no care for the sheep. And that's what Jesus is trying to say. In front of them, he is condemning them, but he is ultimately exposing the world's care of God's things to people who are trapped by the lies. He actually went so far as to say, because I tell you the truth, you don't understand, because you are of your father, the devil, who is a liar. If, if I lied to you, you'd understand me. But when I tell you the truth, you, can't, you don't know. So these false leaders, these thieves, robbers, strangers, hired hands, have nothing in mind but protecting themselves and providing for themselves. So, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. And then he repeats it immediately, the good shepherd. Now, this is a very important Greek construction. And so it wouldn't be fair to only study it in English because there's something more here in the original. Jesus said just, his emphasis is this, I am the shepherd, the good one, the good one. And it's a very, very important order here. As if to say, in contrast to every other shepherd, compared to Jesus, good shepherds aren't good. Because his good eclipses their good. I am the shepherd, the good one. Now there are two words in Greek that could be translated good. One of those words is agathos. Agathos means a, a moral character, like something inside of you that just wants to do good, like a, like a good conscience or having good morals. It's a very, very familiar word throughout the New Testament. But the other word that is translated good is the word kalos. It's the exact opposite of the word kakos, which is to be bad, Kalos is to be good, but not only in the sense of inner morality or character makeup. It's a much more encompassing word. It means to be beautiful, to be magnificent, to be winsome, to be attractive, to be lovely, to be excellent in every category. 
to be far above. It's not just to be inwardly good, like Agathos, but in every aspect. And it's not even to be compared with bad, like in comparison with this, Jesus is better than this. No, 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 no. This is not how to use the word at all. What Jesus is saying is, I win. There is no comparison. He is the premier shepherd. I am the most excellent shepherd. Not the best you've had. Not even the best one you need. He is saying there can't be better than this. I only say that to make it very, very clear how the Pharisees are hearing him. And how the people who are listening to Jesus teach, Jesus is not afraid to call them out, nor is he afraid to step into it. Watch me, is what he's inviting them into. Watch me. Listen to me. Now, the Jews had an idea about who was the best shepherd. In fact, when they would talk about the heroic shepherd or the great shepherd... You know who they were talking about? Oh, that great giant killer. Our first, our second king. The one who loved us so much and established God's nation, Israel. King David, the mighty one. The one who would go out and, you know, the shepherd. The little shepherd boy who tore apart bears and lions, right? The shepherd You remember in chapter 5, Jesus healed the lame man on the Sabbath, and they came and said, well, who do you think you are healing people on the Sabbath? And Jesus said, I mean, I'm paraphrasing. They talked about Moses, and Jesus is like, ultimately, yeah, I'm better than Moses. (gasps) Just a little bit ago, you know, chapter 8, he claimed to be greater than Abraham before Abraham was. I am. (gasps) And now he's the good shepherd, not David. I mean, Jesus is ultimately saying here, he is the better law. He is the better faith. He is the better leader to establish a people. Back to verse 11. The shepherd, the good one, lays down his life for the sheep. I can imagine not only the Pharisees, but even the Jews, all the Jews that are around there are just listening to Jesus go, I can't believe that he is saying these things. Shepherds were absolutely responsible for the sheep under their care. It was a very serious business. It was really kind of a a lowly and humble job because it was unskilled but very high risk. It was messy. It was dirty. Not everybody had the heart to do it. And you could do the job manually with your hands, but good shepherds had to use their hearts. Because if anything happened to the sheep, the shepherd had to produce proof that it wasn't because they had fallen asleep or that they were not paying attention. Amos the prophet, I believe it's Amos chapter 3, verse 12 speaks about the shepherd going and rescuing two legs or a piece of ear out of the lion's mouth. Because whoever ultimately owns the shepherd, the sheep, you have to bring these legs and say, listen, and ultimately what you're saying to the owner is, I've done war with the lion, but I lost the sheep, but it wasn't because I didn't lay my life down for the sheep. 
In Exodus chapter 22, verse 13, it says, If the sheep be torn to pieces, then let him bring a piece for a witness. Uh, Isaiah 31, I believe it is, talks about there was a lion that got too close to people, and, and they call out the shepherds to come and fight the lion, not the warriors. So if you don't have a sheep, if you lost a sheep, you have, to, you have to bring some kind of proof to the owner that you did war with the prowler. You can't just let it go. Prove you didn't just let it go. Prove that you uh, didn't let it wander. Prove that you didn't sell it to a friend or have lamb for lunch. So to the real shepherd, the real shepherd loves the sheep. It was the most natural thing to lay your life down for the sheep. A real shepherd who was doing what he would never hesitate to risk, his life. Now, a hireling would work and run if there was trouble. A reasonable shepherd tended sheep because he loved his job and he wanted to provide for his family. But the good shepherd protected the sheep because he loves the sheep. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, No one has taken my life away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and to take it again. So this good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now there's several words for life. I know we're not learning anything just yet, but there, there are several words for life. And a lot of times, uh, Scripture uses the word bios, which means anything that's alive, anything that's living, anything that breathes. Sometimes it uses the word zoe for life. We get our word protozoa, first life, from the word zoe. It means like the quality of life or that spark that brings something, animates something. Uh, a lot of times, Scripture uses zoe to talk about the life that we have in the spirit, that spark uh, that we have. But these are the only two words for life in Greek. But the word Jesus uses here to reference his sacrifice is the Greek word suke. It's not a word that most of the time is translated life. It's where we get our word soul. It speaks of the, the whole person. You know, we are flesh and we are spirit. And we're also suke, the inward parts, the emotions, the ambitions, the desires, the personality, the thought life. Jesus died a physical death, yes. And he also died a spiritual death, yes. But his death was more than just that. It was total. It was complete. Not only the outside, but the inside as well. The suke, the inside, he... He gave up his soul. He gave up his whole person. He laid it all down. He didn't just feel the pain. He didn't just attack a tiger or a lion or a bear. Jesus laid it all down, bore it all for us. He didn't just feel the, the pain of the thorns in the side of his head, the pain of the scourging in his body. Didn't, Jesus didn't just lay down his body. He also laid down his spirit. Jesus was cut off from the Father because of our sin, but he risked everything so that he may win everything for us. See, our, 
our acceptance of Jesus isn't just about going to heaven when we die. Our receiving of Jesus is about having our minds right. You know, we receive a resurrection of our minds too. It's about having our thought life right, about our having our hearts right, our emotions right, our desires transformed by Him too. He truly is the good shepherd and He lays down His soul for the sheep. He reveals everything to the thief, to the robber, to the stranger, to the hirelings. Jesus gave us everything, including His Spirit, to reside in us. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus said, Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. Here it translates suke again. That Jesus gave His everything. His whole person. And he felt that sacrifice in every part of his being. The thief was coming. The cunning, stealthy serpent to take your mind and to take your body and to take you to hell with him. But Jesus is a good shepherd. The robber was coming and he was going to club you over the head and do damage to you and destroy you now and for all eternity. But Jesus is a good shepherd. That strange voice that you hear that lures you into the world and promises you happiness and belonging and provision. And we're so needy that we almost believe that strange voice. But Jesus is a good shepherd. The world offered us everything, but it always leaves us wanting more. It calls out offering its hireling promises but Jesus is a good shepherd. Why did he do that? Why did he voluntarily lay down his life, his soul? It says, for the sheep, on behalf of the sheep, for the benefit of the sheep. And some people say that Jesus didn't want to die. Jesus died because the Father told him to, and that's partly true. But here, Jesus himself says, for the sheep. They were the end result. What Jesus did, he did for us. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul said, He who knew no sin became sin for us. This is in complete obedience to the Father. But Jesus' motivation was that he, what he saw for us, the benefit for us, he gave his whole person for our whole person. Now, anytime that the shepherd died, what do you think happened to the sheep? If the shepherd dies, the sheep scatter or die. Kill the shepherd, kill the sheep, or at least scatter them. At least they're vulnerable. Whether it's an animal or a robber or a thief or the death of a shepherd, well, that really spells the end of the sheep. But not the good shepherd. Why? Because he laid down his life. Verse 18 says he had the power to do what? Because he laid it down, he had the power to do what? Take it up again. Shepherds can't do that. Good shepherds can. And on the third day, he came out of the grave and had the sheep scattered? You betcha. They had scattered at the death of Jesus. Of course they did. Matthew chapter 26, verse 31, Jesus quotes Zechariah 13, 7. He said, smite the shepherd and what? The sheep will scatter. 
Jesus and Zechariah promised, and they, and they were right. But you remember, Jesus, the good shepherd, came back from the grave, regathered them. So the death of the shepherd is the death of the sheep, but not in this case. Jesus is the one who can risk, who risked his life for his sheep. Remember, he's comparing himself to thieves, robbers, strangers, selfish hirelings of the Pharisees. And listen, you can include whatever on that list that you need to that you're trusting for your provision and care. Whatever it is that you keep going back to, whatever it is that you keep trusting is going to make a difference in your life, but they're all false. And if you'll listen to the voice of Jesus, he is the only shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep and takes it up again. So the good shepherd gives his life, but look, the good, the, he also loves his sheep. I'm going to show you something here that's just not real obvious. Jesus' love is actually what compels. It's the motivator for his care. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. So this explains why Jesus did it, because he knows us. He knows the sheep. He knows them. I want to look at that word no. You say, well, I don't see what... Well, you talk about love is the motivator here, but it's the word no four times. It's the verb gnosko. I know you may not like Greek as much as I do, but it's just so colorful. The word gnosko means to know. But I want to probe a few clues here. Jesus said, my father knows me in verse 15. Look at verse 17. The father loves me. That's the interpretive key to all of this. The word know here has the idea of a loving relationship. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, where Adam knew his wife Eve, where Cain knew his wife and they had a child. Adam knows Eve again and another child, Seth. In the book of Amos, God actually says, Israel only have I, you want to guess? And of course, Israel is not the only people that God is acquainted with. He's talking about something much deeper here. He's talking, it's the same as like when Joseph was very disappointed because Mary was pregnant and he had, he had never, what? Known her. What is he talking about? It's a euphemism for intimacy, for experiential knowledge at the deepest possible levels to have an experiential, loving relationship. It's unmistakable when Jesus uses the word love in verse 7. It colors everything else that Jesus says in this passage. This knowledge is not just about information. Jesus doesn't just know our names. Jesus knows us experientially, relationally, at the deepest possible level. And it's that love that motivates him to lay down his life in front of the thieves, in front of the robbers, the strangers, and the hirelings. This sort of consummated relationship, a oneness, a relationship like the father has with the son, the good shepherd has also with his sheep. This is about having an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus. And Jesus has that with the sheep if the sheep have that with the shepherd. 
This is not just about being in the flock. This is about loving the shepherd. Giving the shepherd everything the shepherd gives us. Complete wholeness. Everything. No missing parts. Complete trust. What Jesus is saying here is that because of that love, our obedience to the shepherd, we get everything that the shepherd gets from being obedient to the owner. John 14, 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father. I will love him and disclose myself to him. The language here is love, not knowledge, not head knowledge. Verse 23 says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him. He will come to me and make our abode with him. In other words, loving Jesus opens up a world where we receive the Father and the Son and the Spirit into our life as an, as a, an obedient believer. It impacts our inside in such a way that it begins to filter our eyes and it changes the way we see the outside. We begin to sense him in our everyday life and begin to see the pasture that is his. He doesn't just know our names. It's more than knowing simply who they are. He has more than an awareness. He has an intimate relationship with his sheep. He knows them in truth. He knows them in truth. There's not, not, there's not one thing that you've ever thought that Jesus doesn't know. And what is his response? I lay down my life for the sheep. I know the sheep. I know them. I'm intimate with the sheep. They get all of me. In the Sermon on the Mount, I think it's uh, Matthew seven twenty two. In fact, Jesus said to those who had never been with him, depart from me, I never Never knew you. Did he not? Was he not acquainted with them? Oh, he, he knew who they were, but he didn't have an intimate, personal relationship with them. Look at verse 16. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Now, the first fold that Jesus is referring to here is Israel. That's kind of unmistakable. Uh, he, he calls them by name. They followed him to the Jew first, also to the Gentiles, right? But these Gentiles are the other sheep. And these leaders of Israel are saying, other sheep? Other sheep? N not of this fold? Non-Jews being brought into the pen, into the pasture of God? This is... This is blasphemy. This is unacceptable to the Jews. This is more fuel for their animosity because they hate Gentiles. In fact, they believe that Gentiles are permanently outside of salvation, outside the covenant. The promises of God do not belong to them. Now, Gentiles convert to Judaism, but they will always be second-class citizens. But Isaiah 42, this messianic prophecy beginning in verse 6, God is actually talking to the Messiah and he talks about 
the Messiah coming as a light to the nations. In Isaiah 49, 6, same messianic prophecy, the, the Father speaking to the Messiah. Is it, a, is it a too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to restore the preserved ones to Israel? I will make you a light to the nations. So when Jesus talks about this other fold, it should be quite obvious to these religious leaders, except they're trying to win by getting. They're trying to be restrictive. They can't believe what they're hearing Jesus say. But all he is doing is quoting prophecy. This is why Jesus gave the Great Commission to his followers to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. To whom? Every creature. In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and where? To the uttermost parts of the earth. And so what Jesus is doing is he's opening himself up to not only being the good shepherd to Israel... But Jesus is declaring here, I am the good shepherd to the world. I am the bread of life, the light of the world. I am the good shepherd to the nations. And my work is to bring all of them into one fold. This is why Paul in Galatians 3 says, In Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile. Or when he was preaching to the Gentile church At Ephesus in chapter 2, Paul says to this church, the middle wall of partition is torn down and we're all one in Christ. Everyone under the good shepherd is one with him and they are one with one another. In fact, Jesus said that's the proof that you're following the leadership of the good shepherd is that you're one with one another. The union with him, the replication of the good shepherd in our life proves that we're walking with him. Finally, look at verse 17 and 18. I said finally. I I really mean it. Kind of, kind of really. Kind of really mean it. Um, Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me. Why? Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. Listen, whose design was Jesus' death? We must say, not the Romans, not the Jews. It was God's. But what does Jesus say? But no one takes it from me. Not even God the Father. But I lay it down. I know what the Father wants, but I lay it down of my own volition. I have authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So can you imagine this? The Father telling the Son here before He even came. Lay your life down. Jesus saying, okay, I will lay down my life for the sheep. But the next command is this. And when you lay your life down, you have authority to take it up again. You have authority to lay it down. You have authority to take it up. Now, this kind of completes the mystery about who raised Jesus Galatians chapter 1 verse 1 says that the Father raised Jesus from the dead. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 18 says the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. John chapter 2 verse 19, Jesus predicts that he will raise himself from the dead. Jesus raised himself through the Spirit, but by the authority of the Father. All three members were involved in Jesus resurrecting from the dead. It was a command of the Father, but no one has taken it from me. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own initiative. 
I'm being obedient to the Father, but I love the sheep. But it's because I'm obedient to the Father that he is giving me the authority to take my life back up again. The Father chose Jesus to be the Lamb, not just the door and not just the shepherd, but Jesus is also the Lamb, the one who is the ultimate thief, the ultimate robber, the ultimate stranger, would tear him to pieces. But he was not overcome like a lamb would be sacrificing himself as an offering and obedience to the Father. His obedience didn't end up in the sacrifice, but was included in taking his life back up again. Jesus obeyed out of love. Love for the sheep, love for the Father. There's a final relationship here, and I want to give it to you in conclusion. Look at verse 19. This is Jesus' relationship, not with the sheep, not with the Father, but with the world around him. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon, he's insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? If you go all the way back to uh, uh, John chapter 7, verse 43, Jesus' dialogue, his, uh, his, his message ends with, and there was great division among them. In John chapter 9, verse 16, it ends with it saying, and there was great division among them. And now, here in chapter 10, there is a division among them. And the division is not between the believers and the non-believers. The division is among non-believers. There were some who looked at Jesus and cursed Jesus and called him demon-possessed. Insane, a maniac. Others said, ah, demon-possessed people don't speak like this. Demon-possessed people don't heal blind people. So on one hand, you have those irrational, unwilling non-believers. On the other hand, you have people who are scratching their head. Demon-possessed people don't heal. A little more rational. But at the end of the day, they were non-believers. See, what you think about Jesus isn't important. If you appreciate Jesus, it doesn't matter. You may say, I think Jesus was a, a good, likable moral teacher. Or you can curse Jesus and think he's demonic. But these people end up in the exact same hell. And unless Jesus is the good shepherd, unless you're covered by his sacrifice, unless you're living out his love in relationship to one another and in relationship to the Father, you're not his. Unless you know him, he is not walking in an intimate, experiential knowledge with you. And you, like the Pharisees, are a divided people. You can appreciate Jesus. You don't have to curse Jesus. But if he's not your good shepherd, if you're not receiving his sacrifice, if it's not transforming the way you live in and out, you are still in your sin. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for the truth of it. 
I thank you that it's so clear to us what it looks like to be in your sheepfold, but yet some really struggle, Lord, with following you because of maybe authority issues or selfish issues or trust issues. But Lord, I pray that today that you would just break our hearts. I pray that you would help us. Help us to see your excellency. Lord, as I, as I hear you reveal yourself to, to the Jews, as I have experienced your revelation to me in my life, I don't know how anyone could not trust your shepherding. So Lord, I pray for a conviction upon the hearts here today who can appreciate you but are not following you. Those who find you likable, those who receive you as information, but do not understand what you have afforded. Help us today understand that there's not gradations of eternity. That our place in eternity isn't based on any kind of moral goodness in ourselves. But the only way that we can spend eternity escaping a devil's hell and entering into our Savior's eternity is by walking in a right relationship with you. Thank you for loving us and demonstrating love for us. And now, Lord, how can we do anything but lay down our life for you? So whatever it is in our life that we're trusting, help us to identify those strange voices may just be thieves and robbers. Those bears and those lions that come in and try to pick us apart. Lord, help us to listen to your voice and to trust your voice. And when you call us, not just by name, but by heart, our hearts are warmed by you because we've spent time with you learning your voice. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with me, please? This morning, I've, I've been praying for a couple of weeks that there would be a conviction that would fall upon us and that we would, we as a church body, as a family, would be able to, to process what, if there's things in our life that's keeping us. I mean, are we really in a relationship with God? What is it that maybe holds us back from experiencing all that he has to offer, all that he is offering to us? You know, coming to church is, a, is an important thing. It's important. But you must have a relationship with the Good Shepherd. So today, if Jesus Christ is not your shepherd, I ask you to come. Well, I hope today that we've been obedient. And if you have questions about what it looks like for Jesus to be your Good Shepherd, I want to have that conversation with you. If you have been obedient today, I want to remind you that the world is filled 
with sheep that have no shepherd. And I pray that we go out with compassion. And I pray that we go out with hope. And that we go out with the good shepherd on our lips and in our hearts to share with people who are scattered. Lord, we give ourselves to you. We ask that you use us to go to the highways and the hedges from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, even to the uttermost to tell people about the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep and takes it up again and gives that life to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.